Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, so here we are, July 7th, 10 p.m., hot off a week where I said that we were uh, back into the groove of regular recording. Um, it's now wait three weeks since that date, roughly speaking, <laughs> so good for me to jinx us. Anyways, what are we talking about this week? I told you at the time not not to jinx us, and then you went ahead and did it, so that this isn't... It's not like you weren't forewarned. This isn't me like hindsight's 2020. I told you at the time not to jinx us. But yeah, we're back. Hope everybody had a a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Um, I know I certainly did. But but we are back and um, my brain is mostly clear. And hopefully, um, you know, I'll say some like cogent stuff tonight. Uh, The big topic for this week is we just got the results of the New York City mayoral race yesterday. And it's something that we had been wanting to talk about, what that says about politics in New York City, what it might say about politics in the country. They use ranked choice voting. And so there's a lot of angles to talk about there, and we'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, and then there's like a lot of other stuff that has happened over the past couple of weeks that we want to touch on, hopefully briefly, but that's to, to be determined. Um, and those, those things Talk about jinxing us. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, those things include the infrastructure bill that seems to have been finally agreed upon, the long-awaited, much much hyped bill. It looks like we might actually have one, so we'll talk about that. Um, the Supreme Court um, Justice Barrett's term just her first term just ended, and so we'll kind of reflect on uh, some of the major decisions that the court came down with this term. Uh, in athletics, we have college athletes in uh, another kind of long-awaited thing are, are finally. Um, ability have the ability to capture um, like endorsements on and capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. So that's kind of a big deal. So the the end of the episode will just be you know you know hitting some of these these news stories that have come up over the past few weeks. But uh, before we get into all that, and before we get into the New York mayoral race, I just want to remind everybody it's been a little while, Ricky. So in case people forgot, uh, this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Wordworking building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And the boys over at Cannon Hill want to remind you that if you are going to clear the table, make sure you get a running start. (laughs) Love it. Always something with those guys. Always is. All right. So the, the mayoral race there in this, I, we should clarify, this is the democratic primary for the mayoral race, but it is largely expected that the, the winner of the democratic primary is going to be the overwhelming favorite uh, in the general election, which takes place in November. But the democratic primary took place on June 22nd. And we just found out the results yesterday, July 6th. And that is because the, the city used uh, ranked choice voting, which we have talked about in uh, several previous episodes, including in depth when we were talking about the ballot measures on Massachusetts back in episode four or five. Um, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But the winner ended up being uh, this man named Eric Adams. So Ricky, before let's not get into the the ranked choice stuff yet or the national stuff yet. What are you, what were your takeaways just from the results of the of this race? Yeah. So 
I mean, this is a race that I think a lot of sort of liberal progressive, liberal Democrats, progressives kind of had their eyes on to just get a sense of, you know, in a bastion of liberalism that that you might sort of classify New York City, what is sort of, um, you know, what do, what do people think about the major issues and how to, how is kind of like the the heart maybe of, of the democratic party in, in like one of the largest democratic States, how are they voting? And I think the, you know, the race for New York mayor is certainly emblematic of that. Obviously, um, as you were saying, the, <laughs> the race is not decided yet. Um, but the primary for the democratic candidate, you know, you would essentially think, um, is, is deciding the race. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of things on the ballot here, so to speak. Um, the topic that I heard come up more more often than not, of course, is around safety, security, defund the police. Um, and there were, you know, some, some definitely diverging views and the candidates brought, um, brought certainly different backgrounds and experiences to the topics, but definitely uh, very different approaches to the issue. Um, I think, you know, the, the winner here, Eric Adams, far less on the um, sort of extreme wing of the defund the police equation. Whereas, um, shoot, I'm going to, Maya Wiley, did I mess that name up? You got it. Uh, You know, may have been, kind of the the sort of the leader of of that progressive banner she's the one who got like the aoc nominations um and i think she finished third but kind of like a distant third um and then there was someone a little bit in the middle um garcia i'm gonna forget her first name both of them also sort of vying to be the first women mayor of um of New York city as well. So yeah, a a lot of things going on here. I think, I think the biggest thing, biggest takeaway droned on about, (laughs) about a lot, but I think the biggest takeaway for me um, was that even in an area that kind of, you know, will view itself as a progressive stronghold. And I don't think the results of this election actually changed that at all. um, Something like security, like the, maybe hasn't the sort of the views on that and how you achieve it maybe haven't changed as much within the democratic party as kind of the national discussion would have you think, I don't know where are you at? Yeah. I want to talk about some of the candidates you, you mentioned a little bit. So let's start with Eric Adams who uh, won the race, as we've said a couple of times here. So uh, his background is he was a former police officer for a number of years, former registered Republican. He then became a, a state Senator. And then he's been the, the Brooklyn borough president since 2014. And so, as you said, as uh, classifying him, he was definitely like center left, uh, the, the moderate Democrat uh, compared to Maya Wiley, who you mentioned, who was uh, far left and was like, as you, as you said, got endorsements from AOC and from Elizabeth Warren weigh, weighing in on this race. And she was the, the progressive hope. And then you had Catherine Garcia, who was the former uh, like sanitation uh, department commissioner under New York city and, and ran like New York city's like um, food drive during the pandemic. So had a lot of experience in, in management 
And then, of course, we can't forget Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate who came out of the gates with a huge name recognition in, in the early polls when he first uh, declared had was the overwhelming favorite. And then there were a number of other smaller candidates, including uh, two of the most well-funded candidates, the, the two people that raised the most money, this guy, Ray McGuire, who was the former head of investment banking at Citigroup, and this guy, Sean Donovan, who was the, worked in housing and ur- urban development under President Obama. So like, like, just a step back, it was a really interesting race uh, in a number of like very different candidates, which, which made it fun to watch and see how it was all going to play out. And something that you said that is interesting to me is you know, New York City is viewed as one of the more liberal cities in America, right? You put you know, it probably behind a city like San Francisco, but in, in the same category as uh, Boston or Chicago, maybe. Um, but New York also has elected Republican mayors in the not too distant past, like most famously Rudy Giuliani. But like it wasn't that long ago where Republicans were elected here. And it was a little bit of a referendum on like these national politics, you have the heaviest of heavy, heavy hitters coming in for Maya Wiley and some big money coming in for McGuire and Donovan and Andrew Yang with the name recognition. Like there was a lot of forces backing all of these candidates and who wins a a dude that's been the Brooklyn borough president. That's a former police officer. And I think that's really interesting to me. And I do think that if we're, if we're going to make this like a more national argument is like, the autopsy from the 2020 elections, and even though Democrats controlled the presidency and, and the Senate and the House, the election was far closer than I think a lot of pundits, a lot of people expected it to be. And Republicans did pick up seats in the House, which which surprised a lot of people. And the autopsy that Democrats did post that 2020 was, look, a lot of our messaging around uh, like defund the police is, is not really working amongst a country that is largely moderate, despite what you may hear on like the, the echo chambers, the loud echo chambers on the far left and the far right. And while Maya Wiley was definitely a more of a proponent of really reform, reforming in a, in a major way, the police department, Eric Adams was, was touting his background as a former police officer. And the number one issue in, in this, in this race for New Yorkers was crime. And crime in New York has been, I think homicides have been up something like 53% in the last two years in, in New York City and, and crime is on the rise. And when, when you talk to average people across um, racial and ethnic lines, defund the police is, is not what they're saying. They're actually saying the opposite is I think we need more security. We need more police officers out here on our streets. And I think that's a big reason Eric Adams won. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's, that's definitely a, a great point. I think... Um, I heard a pretty interesting discussion on the daily uh, recently where it talked a lot about the generational divide and sort of the TikTok generation and who's on, you know, who AOC is firing up. But then Eric Adams was kind of like, look, I, I, I look towards the people who vote and the people who vote are on social security. And he made some comment like that. And I, I thought it was a really interesting one specifically with this idea of kind of security and just overall like yeah like you said how do you how do you deal with crime and i think there is really this interesting divergence right now between how kind of our parents generation and you know us probably are like in a part in there um or at least like we have one foot in in each door 
how they think about crime. They think about crime and they think about criminals and bad guys. And like the, how do you stop bad guys? Like you need good guys, you need police officers. And I think the new sort of the wave, new wave of progressivism is it's, you know, treating crime with police officers is at best like putting a bandaid on a situation that you're not, you know, you're, you're treating the wound, not the disease or um, wow, butchering the crap out of that metaphor, but you know, you know where I'm going with this. Um, And, and it does, I think it brings up like a really interesting point. Well, one, like we know historically, if you can get people afraid and you can sort of say that like, look, these other candidates are for defunding the police and you're, you're already seeing crime on the rise. Like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, whether he says it in those words or not, like that's definitely the implication of a lot of how, how you're going to message your policies in contrast to your opponents. Right. And, and that is always a winning strategy um, in politics. Unfortunately, it's fear is a really big motivator. And I think it'll, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, as a black mayor, uh, you know, what, what really unfolds in New York City, right? Because we know what happened under Bloomberg and Giuliani with stop and frisk and like a lot of these policies and the chokeholds and things like that, that were really, you know, a focal point of the movement that, you know, that was really thrust into the, you know, even more national spotlight last year with George Floyd, right? So those issues are not going away. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really going to be interesting. And I think Eric Adams has some advantages being a former police officer and also being black in that, you know, maybe on being able to, you know, code switch a little bit and, and understand really how, where both sides are coming from, but it is not going to be a simple, uh, a simple task. Yeah. A few things to note that one Assuming that Adams goes on and to win the general election, he would just he would be this just the second of New York's 110 mayors to not be a white man, uh, which uh, David Dinkins back in the late 80s, early 90s was the first black mayor. Uh, but like as you had noted, it would have been a historic election no matter who was elected, whether it was Catherine Garcia or Meyer Wiley would have been the first women and both women of of color, and um, Andrew Yang would have been the first Asian. So like there was. Uh, again, we talked about this in the Boston mayoral race. It's cool to see such a diversity uh, in these mayoral races in our in our big cities. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't even know that it, it, you kind of tempered it by saying that whether or not he was explicitly using fear. Like if if the polls pretty consistently showed that the people's top two priorities were were crime and, and public safety, and his answer to that was. I'm going to create a special unit to tackle gun violence. And Maya Wiley's was, I want to take money away from the police and invest it in jobs and education. And I'm not a, like, we already talked about the defund the police movement that, you know, what a terrible name it is because a lot of Maya Wiley's ideas, I agree with, like, I, I do think that would be really helpful, but I do think it points that it doesn't really play with the electorate, which you pointed out correctly tends to be older and, and view crime and violence differently than a younger generation does because they, the electorate determined what their top issues were. Adams and Wiley had very different ideas about how to tackle that problem. And Adams won. And, and I do think that kind of emphasizes the notion, both in New York City and at large, that though this rhetoric, we, we hear it a lot, like I said, on in social media, and it's like kind of the new progressivism, it's not playing widely in elections. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think th- I think that's definitely true to an extent. I mean, the broader issue, though, is still going to be kind of, you know, this push and pull between kind of the short term solution of, you know, all right, now we have like a dedicated unit to to gun violence. And we I mean, we kind of understand what similar dedicated units to drug enforcement or things like that have done in the past. Oftentimes they like lurk a little bit more in the shadows and do some things that, you know, I don't know. So I don't really know enough about the specifics of this plan, but I do know that kind of the idea of treating or or trying to address gun violence with more force is sort of what we've done in the past. And we have seen short-term results. And I think what we are going to continue to rub up against is, can we continue to move forward with with kind of these short-term ways of addressing these issues, or are we really going to have to think about the broader, you know, what's happening? And, but it, but it's like you said, right? Like the electorate is, is saying like, you're not going to like test this out on me, like in the present, right? Like I understand maybe there's a long-term play here, but I still got to like go to work today. And that's, I mean, I think that's a totally fair thing to vote on, but you know, how sustainable is it? Speaking of testing things out on the population of New York City, uh, ranked choice voting, which has been in use in the city of San Francisco for a little while and in the state of Maine as a whole for a number of years now, got its biggest test in the United States in this election. It's the largest uh, electorate election to ever use ranked choice voting and pros and cons to it. So Eric Adams, after the first round of votes, uh, so just uh, let's recap what ranked choice voting is really quickly. Um, You rank all your candidates. I believe in New York City, you had to rank one through five. Yep. And then if your candidate, so say you voted, hey, Andrew Yang is my guy. Uh, I'm going to vote him number one. Once they determined that Andrew Yang was not going to be able to, to win the election, they take all of his the people that voted for him first and go to their second choice voters. So if you less listed Catherine Garcia too, your vote goes now to Catherine Garcia. And it kind of, it goes down the line like that. It's far more complicated because there are far more candidates, but generally that's how it is. You, you rank the five candidates in the order that you want to see them. If your number one person doesn't win, it goes to your number two person. That, that person gets your vote. All right. So, well, yeah. So that, that is, that is right. It's a little bit odd in the way, or at least maybe this was a distinction that I didn't quite understand um, that if the, if, after the first round, nobody gets 50, you know, 0.001% of the votes, then the last place person, their second, you know, they get eliminated and whoever was voted second on all those ballots then goes and then they run it again and again and again um, until somebody has over 50% of the first place votes. Exactly. Good clarification, good detail. And, And the, one of the main arguments for it is that you're not going to have someone in this case win an election with like 28% of the vote, which is what something similar to what Eric Adams had after this, this first run. So Eric Adams was sitting in first place. He had the most first place votes after the first round. And there was already the rhetoric coming out of the Adams camp that like, hey, I've won this election. And like this ranked choice thing is, is not good. We, like if, if, I, if I come back and lose this, there's going to be election issues. So I don't like that. But uh, luckily for... Adams and maybe for New York City elections as a whole, after the ranked choice voting 
system was tallied, Adams was still in first. There was a swap in second and third. So Maya Wiley, who had gotten the second most first place votes, um, she was overtaken by Catherine Garcia, which again, I think speaks a little bit more to Wiley had like a, had maybe 20% of people that were very much in her corner as a, like a little more of a fringe or progressive candidate, while Catherine Garcia could appeal to maybe a broader electorate. Um, but after it all happened, and this is, you know, it took two weeks to get the results. And that's certainly something that a lot of people will criticize. New York City, the election board handled it like really sloppily. Uh, they unfortunately c- counted a bunch of like 100,000 like test ballots. They released results after like the first round of ranked choice voting, but they weren't the final results. So Rick, I'd be curious, like, so my opinion of it was largely this is success and any failures that happened were more attributable to the ineptitude of the New York City electoral board, as opposed to the ranked choice system failing. But curious your takes on that. Yeah, I mean, I, like you, am a huge proponent of ranked choice voting. Um and, and, and think that it should be simple. You rank the candidates in the order that you want them to be elected, and then the rest takes care of itself. It's really not that complicated. I was like horrified at what I saw was going on. Um, the New York Times like released like some article also like giving people a strategy of, hey, if you want such and such person to get elected, like here's who you vote first. And then you have to vote these other people in a different order because you want to make sure like all of that stuff is so counter to the point of ranked choice voting, which is that like (laughs) the, you know, somebody that not everybody hates has a good chance of getting elected because that person should be at least within, you know, most people's one top one, two, three candidates, right? Like that's the whole point. Um, and it was, it was, I, yeah, I mean, the scariest thing about it, of what happened in New York city, like beyond, um, no, so let me say, I, I, I agree that I think it worked largely in the way that it was intended to work at the end of the day. Um, but like so many things that feel like an experiment, regardless of like what was to blame, like ranked choice voting was almost on the ballot. And because it didn't go smoothly, like I, I worry about its future or its implementation anywhere. I mean, st- start with this one thing that they had the election and it took them two weeks to figure out who is the winner. Like I could have written you an ex- an Excel like set of formulas that should do that in one day. Like there's no reason that with the resources that New York City has, that they couldn't figure out how to, how to like, how to do this is it's not, I mean, it's math. It's not, it's, it's not like you're, you know, you should have to reinvent the wheel as these things work and then releasing the winner and then saying, Oh, we made a mistake and we don't know if these are the right numbers. Like it made it seem like it was so difficult. There shouldn't really be anything that much more challenging about counting ranked choice ballots than there are about regular ones. No, and this isn't some like invention they just like made up in Maine. Like other major countries use this. And so I was reading a little bit about, um, I'll talk about Ireland and Australia, the two I want to talk about. Australia was similar to New York City where they take all of the election day votes in, they, they eliminate the people in the order, as you said, from 10, 9, 8 to redistribute all our votes. And by election night, they get out a result. Like in, as opposed to two weeks. And again, this is the first time it happened in New York City, but like it's not impossible to do it quickly. And secondly, Ireland does something slightly different, but I think 
is valuable in its own way. Every time a candidate is eliminated, they release the results of where that candidate's votes went. And so everyone can, like, there's no, like, it's just fully transparent. And they say, all right, well, Andrew Yang came in fourth. He's eliminated his 20,000 votes. You know, we had 8,000 went to Adams and 6,000 went to Wiley and 4,000 went to Garcia, right? And then everyone's like, okay, I can follow along with that. So I don't necessarily care which way New York City or anybody else ends up going, but I'm just saying that there are other ways already that already exist. Like, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here that we can just do that a lot better. But to your point of like rank choice being on the ballot itself, especially in today's climate where there's so much disinformation and so much distrust of elections, anytime you screw up it, and not only like New York City screwed up once, they screwed up like three or four times. It just, it, 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 it devalues people's you know, trust in elections. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, no, no, definitely. I think there were some other sort of pointed criticisms of ranked choice voting primarily um, like you said, from, from Eric Adams side of things, sort of saying that, Hey, this is, you know, we didn't do this right. And so this can really like disenfranchise a lot of my voters who may be uh, lower income, lower educated from the outer boroughs rather than, you know, what's going on in Manhattan. I think, uh, you know, Maya Wiley was criticizing a lot that, hey, it looks like Andrew Yang has like formed an alliance with uh, Garcia. They're like campaigning together. That is actually a lot about what ranked choice voting is intended to do, though, is to create some coalitions because what you have are similar candidates campaigning on similar issues. And it allows you to have more candidates in the field and still say like, you know, we're, we're kind of, we feel like we're doing a lot of the same thing. Like, I think I could do the job. I also think she could do the job. So, you know, if you're going to vote for me, maybe you think about putting her second. I had no problem with that. Um, And, and I think that speaks to like, yeah, how do you, uh, you should have a broad appeal in your electorate, but other candidates, maybe you should also think that you're qualified to do the job. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And there'd be less contentiousness for everybody, theoretically. Uh, but I will say credit credit to New York City for at least uh, being innovative and trying new things. Exactly. Uh, like, uh, it didn't go well, but they're, they're, they're trying. And I appreciate, I appreciate when people try to do things a little bit differently. All right. Uh, when we come back, we'll get into uh, a number of other topics that we mentioned off the top. All right, so I think we're now two or three weeks on from the episode where we basically talked about the end of bipartisanship and that these compromises are dead and in the, in the spirit of continuing to jinx ourselves right afterwards, we, we, we do have a compromise of sorts, the infrastructure bill. Um, quick, quick high-level hits on that. It's a $579 billion infrastructure package, um, $312 billion of which is sort of earmarked for transportation projects. This includes a little bit for electrification for EVs. Um, 65 billion to broadband, so expanding access to broadband, um, 55 billion to waterways, um, and another, or I think within this uh, total, 47 billion earmarked for 
resilience. So like a little bit of a nod to Biden's pledge on, on tackling climate change. Although, you know, many will point to this as kind of a, a failure in that it doesn't directly, um, directly address or directly deliver on a lot of promises Biden made towards kind of decarbonization of the grid. Um, A couple other things uh, of note that are interesting. I think uh, Senator Warner, Democrat from Virginia, talked about a $40 billion injection to the Internal Revenue Service. Um, That's, you know, know, in terms of how are we going to pay for this, some of that is either stepping up tax enforcement and then we'll talk about potentially new taxes as well. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to sink your teeth into in this. Um, I don't know where you want to start. Perhaps, you know, is this a real compromise? Do we, are we seeing, are we seeing some real compromise legislation here? I'm thrilled, honestly, uh, like, like very pleased. This is like in my, in my biggest hopes for like a Biden presidency, this is what I think I, I hoped was going to happen. Uh, and I, I saw a great political headline a week or so ago, and it said Biden catches his white whale because for several presidencies now, presidents have been promising infrastructure deals and uh, Trump couldn't get it done. Obama couldn't get it done. Bush couldn't get it done. And Biden, it appears, and it's not done yet, but it appears like he's on the road to getting it done. And he promised a couple of things when he was campaigning that one, he would actually get infrastructure done. And two, because the way he was going to get it done was that he could actually make deals. And we, I, we have said over the course of his presidency so far that he's been under just tremendous pressure from the left, particularly after they were able to get like their first reconciliation bill through back in March, that let's just do a number of reconciliation bills and push through all of our proposals and, and get the wins and get all everything that we want, all of our priorities. Let's just pass them and get them through. And Biden, to his credit, has stuck it out. And we talked about his his working with um, Senator Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia for weeks and months and everyone said it's not going to work. And then it fell apart. And the, all the prayers on the left said, see, I told you Republicans are just wasting time. Like they never actually meant to come to the table. And Biden came back. He met with this group of, of 10 senators, a number of whom uh, we've mentioned on this show before, because these are like my personal favorite senators. And from the right, it's Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, um, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney. And from the left, it's Joe Manchin, Gene Jaheen, Kristen Sinema, John Tester, Mark Warner. Like these are senators who, as we talked about, like you have to come like with good faith. Those 10 senators are coming with good faith and they put together a package. If you remember originally, uh, the White House came out and said, hey, we want $2 trillion. And Republicans came back with something in like the six, $700 billion range. And it looks like the final deal is for about $974 billion, the, the new spending of $559 million that you already mentioned, and then they're repurposing funds that had already been um, granted in the budget to different departments. And it, it, it seems to me like a, a true compromise. Now, I mean, who were the winners in this deal? The winners are Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who pretty much staked it and said that we're only going to work if we can get a bipartisan deal. The winners are all of the Republicans that came to the table in good faith. Uh, The losers are the people on the far left who feel like they've been kind of sold out. So, I mean, as as optimistic I want to be right now, the the bill's not done. uh, And there's been some contentiousness over the past week. And I don't know if we need to get into all of like the ups and downs of what's happened since this agreement was made. But 
while a bunch of moderate Republicans have already signed on to the deal, now there are progressive Democrats that are saying, well, we're not going to sign, potentially not going to sign on to it. And so like, there's still going to have to be some whipping for both Schumer and McConnell if he wants to, um, to get the 60 votes for this to pass. But uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with the process. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say the losers here are, are solely on the, on the far left. I I'd say it's, you know, you, I, I, I think it's probably more evenly distributed between the, you know, the quote unquote extremes of, of both parties, because in, in reality, those two, you know, kind of wings of our political system operate on the, you know, every compromise is defeat and, and any yeah. deal that you're doing with the other side is like a deal with the devil. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Because Biden, if, if he chooses to run for re-election, is going to be able to campaign on like promises fulfilled. Like he said he was going to do it and he did. And certainly the same thing with those Democratic senators are going to be able to point to, hey, we got things done when previous you know, administrations, whether they be presidents or senators, weren't able to. So no, re- really good point. There are, while the, maybe the more obvious losers uh, in this particular deal are on the left, I think the extremes of both parties, are. you're right, uh, lose when moderates actually get together and, and get things done. Yeah, I, I, I guess I do wonder, you know, if there are, I mean, we've talked about these moderates before, right? Like a, a mansion who's a Democrat in West Virginia is not really worried about being primaried by a Democrat to his left because it's just not a, you know, he is like, a, like you know, what you would call like a Democrat in, in name mostly, kind of the way like a baker might be right like so so yeah i mean i guess they're a little bit freer and then you know to your other point of well are there going to be some progressives out there who are trying to trying to say well all right well then we're not going to let this thing go through i think at the end of the day we're going to see no like that not happen but I wouldn't be surprised if people are like, I'm sick of Joe Manchin, like running the show here. Like somebody else needs to be the the person that gets courted for the, for the vote. And it's not going to be him anymore. I mean, and Sanders literally said that on television last weekend, he was like, he literally said, I'm sick of talking about Joe Manchin. And, and maybe it's, I don't know that Sanders is the one to come out and be like, wow, I'm mad at the, that this Senator is getting so much attention and trying to dictate things in Washington, DC. But I think it would certainly be, is the guy that's our party hostage like why can't i do the same thing over here on the left and that will certainly i mean it's only it's been crazy we talked about him pretty much every episode but he's he's been by far the most important center the first six months of biden's presidency but it's only been six months right there's still another year and a half before we get to to midterms for other senators to see this and get sick of this and, and want to do some of the same things yeah yeah in, indeed all right so another thing that we want to talk about was the Supreme Court uh, ended their term, which I mentioned earlier was um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's first term, which was closely watched because this is the court ostensibly had a new 6-3 conservative majority or at least uh, you know six uh, appointees by Republican presidents to only the three appointed by Democratic presidents and the largest majority in at least a couple decades. It's been pretty consistently 5-4 um, since I would say maybe the mid nineties. Um, and so it was, it was closely watched to see you know, how this new dynamic would play out. And it wasn't, it wasn't a term that took a lot of huge cases. Uh, we'll talk about 
that kind of going forward next term at, at the end, perhaps. Uh, but some of the more notable ones, uh, there was an, the another challenge led by Texas to the Affordable Care Act. There was the Catholic Services case, foster care case in, in Philadelphia. There was the NCAA case that we talked about. Um, the voting rights case that came down this week, the challenge to the Arizona voting rights uh, case. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, there was a case about life sentences of juveniles, um, limiting deportation relief for certain people. But but it wasn't it wasn't like an explosive docket that was in front of them. So, uh, Ricky, do you have any takes now that you've now that we've seen the the decisions from this docket? Docket any? patterns or anything stand out to you from from Justice Barrett's first term? Well, I, I first thing I'll say and just admit ignorance here is that I had no idea Supreme Courts had terms because everyone there is on a lifetime appointment. I just figured that it just keeps eventually they get tired and take a break for a little while and don't don't listen to any cases and then they just then they pick it up again. Uh, so, yeah, you learn something new every day. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, major, major takeaways. I mean, you know, I, I guess there's a little bit of, uh, people probably in the center, right. Being like, see, I told you so, uh, you know, Coney Barrett was not as extreme as people had put her out to be. I, I think there are some other certain cases, um, certainly LGBTQ rights kind of, <laughs> uh, not, not seeing many victories under this court, whereas something like the Affordable Care Act, that major challenge that a lot of people were looking at a 6-3 Republican or a 6-3 majority of appointees by Republicans, uh, meaning sort of the, the, the death knell for the Affordable Care Act. And, and that was struck down. I mean, I think I, I think you're seeing a little bit of what you would hope to see in that. Um, there's like a little bit more of, I don't know if principle is the the right word, but there are a lot of like technical rules and things that you have to follow as a Supreme court justice, which means that you can't necessarily just like, you know, go up there and kind of do, do whatever you want. And these are very, you know, learned people, regardless of what I may think about their politics or how they interpret certain rules um or you know how they interpret the constitution even i i could i could take issue with those things but i know at least you know in comparison to a lot of our elected officials that they have a little bit of a different standard to uphold and i feel like we're seeing that uh to a a a fairly large degree i don't think it is as much of a partisan doomsday as yeah, I guess I'll say that. But like you said, also not that many major cases like the 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 Affordable Care Act case that was dismissed was basically dismissed because of standing. And so it doesn't really like reaffirm the Affordable Care Act, certain things about the Voting Rights Act that, you know, under, you know, a more liberal court, you probably would have seen overturned kind of continues to leave the, you know, the Voting Rights Act from the, the 60s to where it is, which is pretty much ineffectual under today's court and under today's like guidelines for the court. So that's a little disappointing, but yeah, overall, I mean, it's like a meh, I guess. I don't know. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people you referenced off the top that's kind of saying, see, I told you so. Like when everybody's like, oh, this guy is falling when each of the last three justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and, and Barrett were appointed. And everyone's like, this is the end of the world. Well, like, look at some of the main cases that have come down since they've been a- appointed. It's, you know, the the Affordable Care Act was challenged again, like you mentioned, and, and it, up, it was with withstood the challenge once again. Uh, we looked at the case from last term where there was a challenge whether you could fire people on based on their sexuality. And it was an opinion written by Justice Gorsuch saying that you could not do that. Um, if you look at like the NCAA case, which a lot of people, I think across the spectrum, I mean, liberals in particular were saying that it's discriminatory against major college athletes, many of whom are like young black men. Uh, and that was a d- decision written by Justice Kavanaugh. So it's like, it is to me like, Look, everyone makes this, this hue and cry about these last three justices and these you know, demonstrations in the streets. And it's like, all right, well, let's actually go and look what they what they do before we judge all these people. And uh, a few stats for you. The 43 percent of the cases this term were unanimous. And I think that often gets lost because so many of the cases that we hear about in the news are split. But the not the majority, but the plurality of cases that come before the court are actually unanimous. And that doesn't even include a number of cases. I think there were, so there were, <laughs> Supreme Court only decided 58 cases this term and 29 of them were unanimous and 10 of them were eight, one splits. So it's in something like 60% of the cases, they're overwhelmingly that the justices agree. Uh, I got a little bit of a trivia question for you. Which justice do you think was in the majority in the most cases this term. Clarence Thomas. No, come on. I, I, whatever. Maybe this is my law school self. That, that was a terrible guess. But uh, so Kavanaugh was in, he was in the majority 97% of the time. And what that says is before this, re, the recent appointees, um, Justice Roberts, since his appointee, his, um, his appointment back in 2005 has consistently been the one that's in the majority of the most previous. It was Anthony Kennedy. Then it was just, oh, right. so it's whoever's in the middle of the court. In the and so it's Kavanaugh right now, who's in the middle. And that, that does mean that the court has moved to the right because Kavanaugh's a little bit to the right of Roberts, but it, it also shows that it's, uh, you know, Kavanaugh maybe wasn't the monster. Everyone trying to make him out to be, uh, but I'll, I'll leave that as, as is. I, and then what, what's with well, the split that's been most interesting to me has been that it's it's in this is I'm not even come up with this. I, I've read this in a number of places that the court's really right now in like a three 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 split, and where like a lot of the the cases that either went that went six three. So you have Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, who are the three Democratic appointees, the more liberal justices, and they're often a voting block, not always, but often. And then you have Kavanaugh, Roberts, and Barrett, who have in this first term been a pretty consistent voting block. And then you have Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, who have been a voting block. And so there have been cases 6-3 both ways that where Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett have gone with the liberal justices, other cases they've gone with the, the more conservative justices. And for sure, the courts become more conservative under the Trump appointees, but it's it's not, it has not been like a clear 6-3 split that a lot of people thought. And to me, just like as an observer, like of the law and the court, it's it's been really interesting to watch. Yeah, and and you were far more in tune with this than I am, clearly, but by that guess. I kind of just figured that Clarence Thomas was sleeping through a lot of things and just like would sign off on which don't get me sorry. He's my whatever. I'll 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 let it slide. I said some inflammatory things that you let slide. I'm gonna let that slide. Yeah. <laughs> um I I mean what I will say or what I 
What I think, however, is that still, you know, your point of like not kind of the major landmark cases being being kind of like I, I don't necessarily know that there are liberals who were, you know, super worried about the Barrett nomination and the Kavanaugh nomination or Gorsuch even who are really saying like, okay, I've seen what they do. And I feel comfortable now that the Affordable Care Act will stand. I think a lot of the cases that have somehow made it to the Supreme Court, not a lot, but a few of them, namely this Texas challenge to the Affordable Care Act was a really weak challenge. Um, yeah. And I guess only thing to say is that that there, there will be future challenges and, and clearly given the makeup of the court, Republican AGs and uh, and legislators are going to continue to test, you know, how far that they how far they can push it because we're so anyways. Yeah, it remains to be seen what what uh, for me anyways. For sure. Right. And, and speaking of like future cases, it's going to be a fairly explosive docket uh, next term, which will be uh, in, the, in the fall. And two of the major cases is a major abortion case from Mississippi, which will be a challenge, maybe not directly, but maybe directly to Roe v. Wade. Um, but it's certainly one of those potential chances for justices to gut a law. Um, and there's another one of uh, a challenge to expand gun rights in New York City, which is going to be a fascinating case. Um, and of course, there'll be other cases. But yeah, like the story, as you said, is is not written for this court as a, as a nine member court. But I do think it's it's useful every term to stop and reflect and, and you know evaluate what they've done because we spend feels like we spend so much time in the lead up to the court and the nominations and who gets on the court and then we don't we don't talk about them again until there's like another vacancy. So I, I feel like we should at least try at minimum every term to to discuss and reflect on what they've done. Well, now that you're in law school, at least you can try and keep us informed. Try. Oh, one last thing to say. Um, justice Breyer is uh, the oldest justice on the court, at least the oldest Democrat, uh, democratically appointed justice on the court, and is under a great deal of pressure, which I think is terrible, to retire so that um, President Biden can appoint his successor. Uh, while it would be naive to say that the judiciary is not political, I mean, the job of the justice, you know, Supreme Court just, justices have their jobs for life. They are they don't need to retire. Certainly, we've seen with Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia, they oft, sometimes die um, while they're still on the bench. Uh, so Breyer, in my opinion, should be able to retire whenever he damn well pleases. Uh, and I hope he, I know he doesn't need any advice from me, but I hope he doesn't give in to any political pressure to, you know, to try to retire at a certain point. Uh, yeah, I'll probably disagree with that. Um, I think that given what we, (laughs) what we know about how this, how our country functions, how, uh, Supreme Court confirmations work, um, given that the, now the Democrats have a Senate majority that they can actually push through a nomination, um, it would probably be wise to take advantage of that as the as republicans did so um we'll see i mean i i I think a lot of people looked at ginsburg's decision not to retire um you know in the early 2010s um as something that you know democrats are are potentially 
paying for it a little bit now. And while we haven't seen it yet, as we said, the legacy is, is yet to be written. So um, that is, yeah. I mean, your point is fair too, um, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> Speaking of things that we'll see how they, they play out, uh, just last week, the NCAA decided to allow their athletes for the first time in its history to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness, often you know, acronized as uh, NIL. And what that does is previously, and you know, ridiculously now in hindsight, athletes couldn't go and work at like a basketball camp, even if they played basketball at Kentucky, they couldn't go run a football camp in the summer, even if they played at Alabama and there was nothing they could do. They couldn't go and get a deal from like a sponsorship deal from like a local car dealership, not to mention any like national retail organizations. And so athletes, despite the fact that their schools and uh, people at their schools, including their coaches and their athletic directors and presidents were making millions of dollars off of them and their person and their name and their image. And they were selling jerseys with their numbers on them, but not their name on them. Now students for the first time have the opportunity to make money off of their name and image like this. And this is not something the NCAA did all of a sudden out of its goodwill. Florida and a number of other states passed laws in their state legislatures saying that they were going to allow students, athletes to do this. And so as opposed to the NCAA having a patchwork of some states allowing athletes to profit off their name, image, like this, and other states not, the NCAA decided last week out of the blue, really, to allow them to profit off their name, image, and likeness. And combined with the Supreme Court decision that we just mentioned from this previous term, where students, the schools could pay their athletes outside of the tuition. So for things like school supplies or books, it's been a huge summer for NCAA athletes. And it has, I mean, it's, I'm very happy with it, but it's kind of impossible to see like the true consequences. It'll probably take a few years for it, for this to all play out, but uh, thrilled for all the student athletes that will have a, have a much more fair and equitable um, system in place. Yeah. Um, so I guess first, let me say I've, I've long been in favor of athletes getting some type of compensation for, uh, yeah, for essentially what is a job at any D one university and, and many, you know, sort of high, high market D three or like FCS type of programs, you know, they are bringing in money for their schools and essentially being treated like employees. Um, but they've never gotten any cut of that. And so, and and then, like you said, on top of it, get penalized, like, you know, Terrell Pryor for getting tattoos for some merchandise for, or for like a game worn Jersey or something, having all of his wins vacated, that kind of stuff was, you know, absurd given how much money the NCAA was taking to, to try and penalize some kids who were making a little bit of money off of selling their signatures or, you know, whatever um, was ridiculous. That being said, like you said, it's so early that we don't really know what the consequences are. I'm, I, I feel like there are a bunch of things that I'm, 
that kind of sadden me about the way that this is going. One, like I know that college sports have not had that, like, you know, the purity or like the innocence of whatever amateurism that people are just playing for the love of the game and nothing else for a long time. But there is something about money that does, it does change things a little bit. And, um, I think it's going to continue to make it harder for smaller schools to attract talent because bigger schools just like automatically open these kids up to bigger markets. And if really all they're able to benefit from is marketing themselves as individuals, um, you know, I think there's, there are going to be things that we see that, that we just don't, that we don't like about it or that, you know, had, so far kind of been sheltered in the, in the college sports world. Um, that's definitely one thing that, that worries me. And the, and the other thing is that like, at the end of the day, there are thousands of kids that play college sports. Um, but there are only a handful of names that people recognize, right? There are only a handful of kids that are actually going to get um, some, that are actually going to get sponsorship deals or being able to like really monetize their TikToks or Instagrams or whatever. But at the same time, like you don't have a college basketball tournament without the sixth guy on the bench either, right? Like you need those other kids that are really still not going to be able to, I mean, they'll benefit maybe a little bit from some of the stipends that the universities can provide. But again, we're talking about multi multi-billion dollar events like the NCAA tournament, then, you know, the, whatever the, um, the college football playoff, like these are making like inordinate sums of money. And yeah, we're saying, all right, now you can sell your Jersey or, you know, if, if you right want to run a football camp in the summertime, go for it. I don't know necessarily what a proper or fair agreement would look like, I know that a lot of these kids are excited. I'm certainly happy for them. They have opportunities that they've never had before, but it's one of those things where like, you might just be getting a breadcrumb here and the NCAA is going to be like, all right, you know, we did the thing now and it's back to us. We'll take our billions. Thank you. And you guys can, you know, whatever fight for scraps that you can find. Um, So I, I, uh, I don't think it's as positive as I would I, you know, as I don't know, I don't know what the ideal solution would have been. And as, as you know, as I am, uh, I worry about the the downsides of things. And I, I I'm definitely, I'm definitely nervous about how this is going to play out. Yeah. I mean, really only you could turn that into like a huge downer. Uh, but I will say that Kavanaugh's opinion, like to your point, it, it's left open. Hopefully it's not a trickle. It, this feels like some Maybe maybe it's cracks in the dam of the NCAA, but um, to me it feels like the, the dam is barely, barely hanging on. And Kavanaugh's opinion, um, concurrence in the NCAA case, which not everyone signed on to, pretty much welcomed like any challenge to like the NCAA hegemony. And so again, to be determined how it all plays out. But uh, I think we both agree that it, it's it's a good step for for athletes to be able to profit off of their own accomplishments as opposed to just and again like not to hammer this home, but it, these are oftentimes we're talking about big time football and big time basketball that make the vast majority of the money. And these are largely like black athletes who have been previously making money for a lot of white administrators. And it's worth, I think, pointing out that it, it this 
while it's not perfect, is a little more equitable. Totally. I mean, it is, it is definitely worth pointing out. Um, I'm, yeah, cautiously optimistic. I'll leave it at that. Great. Uh, well, that's, that's a wrap for us. Hopefully, the connection issues weren't too bad. It's been thundering and lightning out here. Uh, and so hopefully this, this all comes through okay. Yeah, Comcast, if you're out there and you want to sponsor a podcast, uh, take an internet upgrade. Yeah, that, that would be great. All right, till next time, buddy. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, see ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain. So we're online. We seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me when we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head from folks of different minds because though we did not share. Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning bird.